Hey everybody, welcome to Slip Angle. This week, uh, it's Monday, June 1st, and we're doing a show with Andrew Rains of Apex Pro. So, Andrew's been on the show uh, a few times. I think only one of them made it to air because I lost an episode and I feel like <laughs> a dipshit. Um, so, hi Andrew, how are things? Hey Abe, I'm, uh, I'm here, I'm good, and things are pretty good, how are you? I'm I'm doing okay. So I've been uh I've been at my desk now for I feel like 9 weeks. It's been it's been a long time here at the house. Yeah. Um I've went in to work a couple of times, but uh more more recently I've went in a few times like more than I would have liked. My wife yelled at me this morning for going to work too often. So uh hmm. now uh now I get to sit at my desk for a while. But huh. back at back in the desk, yeah, back in the much. saddle. Um, so what's, what's been going on with Apex Pro for the last, uh, three months? Uh, it sounds pretty similar really, other than, um, I've been working at the office and not at home. Uh, we just don't, we don't have a ton of people in our, in our building. So we, we, uh, we're operated out of like a shared space, kind of like an incubator type setup, except it's pretty unique because me and my, um, and my partners or my partners and I and Apex Pro also, uh, actually, my my partner's not me. Own the the incubator space, so we're kind of like a founding startup of the uh, of the incubator, if you will, or the accelerator, whatever you want to call it. Um, we call it a startup studio. Um, and there's only right now there's only five people here regularly. Um, so we had some part time folks that we uh, dialed back at the beginning of coronavirus, and uh, that brought us back. We had like ten people here, and that brought us back down. So it's been really manageable. So we all have our own office. So we basically go in, use hand sanitizer, go into our offices, and yell at each other through the walls if we need to talk. <laughs> uh. it's, uh, I think it's like uh, uh, what, Peter and uh, Lawrence from Office Space, where they just yell at each other through the apartment window. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, okay, so uh, track season's been down for a little while, but that doesn't seem to have slowed down Apex Pro too much. You guys have been busy. Yeah, we've been super busy. It, I, we were fortunately kind of already going towards a lot of webinar content and uh, and paid webinars, uh, which really allows us to to do a lot more as far as the value that we offer um, before all coronavirus kind of stuff got started. So. Uh, yeah, we've been focusing on that. I had my buddy Robbie Foley on for a webinar about braking. Um, he he races in IMSA. Uh, he's won a couple of GTD races uh, in IMSA, so he's got really cool perspective and done a bunch of other stuff like that. We've talked about the speed trace. Um, I know you've joined a couple of webinars. So I appreciate that. Uh, learning learning some data skills. So we've just been focused on the education yeah, game. You can count and, on uh, me to ask for dumb thing. questions. All the dumb questions. Yeah, that's right. No, not really. Um, so you've been doing, um, you've been doing a lot of those over the last few months. Uh, you as an instructor, what do you think the biggest takeaway you've had from doing all that has been? Uh, I mean, it's been a great way to keep the conversation going while we all desperately want to be at the racetrack and, and talk about, um, you know, driving. I think that's been really cool. Um, there's been, there's been a, a handful of takeaways and one is that like we need to do it more often because it's really good for for um our customer success rate and for communicating uh how you can leverage your data and sometimes just how simple it can be to get information out of the data um sometimes it doesn't have to re- it doesn't really require a whole lot of 
um, knowledge and understanding, you can just find some shapes or something that you can, that looks kind of familiar that you can correlate with what's happening. Uh, so that's, that's been a big takeaway for me. Um, I think I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot by the questions people ask and by, um, you know, it's kind of hard to interpret, uh, like in these webinars, people aren't, you know, I'm not with them in person and seeing how they're asking these questions and interpreting their body language. So, uh, it's been a challenge for me to understand what people are asking when they're typing questions and that sort of thing. But, um, I think we've learned a lot. I think, um, the feedback's been really good. I, th- I think people have appreciated it and have enjoyed it. And it certainly helped us, um, stay in business and continue to grow and be here for the future. So I really appreciate the people that have jumped on board and, and paid for webinars because most people that have done our webinars have done like all of them, you know, like all seven or eight of them so far. So thank you very much. So, uh, I think it was having watched a few of those that really made me want to pull the trigger and buy an iPad for, um, some additional analysis. And, uh, I was able to trade in a bunch of like old devices in my house that were taking up space. Um, but I haven't yet pulled the trigger on a new iPad only because, Mm -hmm. uh, well, I haven't been to the track yet to need any of that stuff, but, um, (laughs) I think that was the coolest feature was, um, you know, you can use your iPhone as a mechanism to, to record and log your data inside the car. But if you really want, if you want more screen real estate, the app also works on iPad and you can go back and do your data analysis. And from my perspective, having an iPad at the track just seems more like more manageable than needing to power up a full size laptop and to install a bunch of software on that. Like the app just seems easier. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, iPads, I mean, it's just like a bigger iPhone, right? It kind of operates the same way. They're really slim. They're easy to carry with you. A lot of people actually take them in the car with them, so they don't even have, a don't even have like, the iPhone intermediary. Oh, is um, that right? Yeah, it just uh, seen a lot of people put them in seat back pockets, uh, and then, like, uh, Ram makes a whole line of iPhone or uh, iPad mounts. I did not um, know so, that. Yeah, so it's pretty manageable. If, if you, you do have to have, you know, the right type of car and, and, you know, placement type situation. But, um, the BLE, the low energy Bluetooth that we use in apex pro will pretty much connect from anywhere within like a 20 foot radius of wherever the unit is. Okay. So pretty much anywhere in the car. I mean, you can throw the thing in the trunk and it connect to it. So that's, that's um, pretty slick. I, uh, I almost want to just do that. That seems, that seems great. Yeah. Cut out the, cut out the, uh, the need to, you know, cha- uh, transfer the data, which is, is, about as simple as it gets, but yeah, you bring up a good point. There is, there is more review functionality on the iPad simply because you got more screen real estate to deal with. And, and I, so you if can I remember you get multiple, you have enough room for multiple channels, right? Like you can look at multiple traces at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you can pull up a speed trace and a longitudinal G or lateral G trace on the same screen or a speed trace in a friction circle or a GPS track image in a friction circle. You can kind of get that multi screen view, uh, that's going to, that's just like simply on an, on an iPhone. If you start adding that stuff into the UI, you're going to be hitting, you're not going to be able to use the app functionally because all the buttons will be too small. Right. Um, um, now, hypothetically, if I put my full size iPad and I Ram mount it to the windshield or somewhere equivalent, does that mean that I can also get uh, gigantic lap timer plus data displayed in real time <laughs> while I'm doing it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Okay, so it's uh, 
it, it's it's like the 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 jitterbug equivalent to your iPhone, which is just like make the numbers as big as possible, get make the screen <laughs> as big as possible. Yeah, there you go. I mean, yeah, exactly. That way, you know how much faster or how much slower you are in the most obvious way imaginable. I know that uh, I don't think he uses Apex Pro specifically, but one of our drivers who who went full ham on a rebuild um, this off season, he has a, a, a C6 Z06 uh, with a now twin turbos something something. Um, it's an LS. I don't know. I think it's a. It's not a 468 anymore, I don't think, but like it's it's big, and now it makes 850 horsepower, and it has, I think, whoa, uh, I think it has a Samsonis uh, um, sequential gearbox. So whoa. like this is this is about as race car as we get. I mean, it's it's pretty close, um, but he has a full size like big display. Uh, I think on an Android device probably, but like that's what he uses exclusively for data management in the car because it can. Uh, in a really easy way, tell him like how he's doing it with respect to lap times and things. It's, it seems like you're so focused on a million things that uh, reducing the the effort to get the data you need is is key. And I think that's why the, the lighting box um, or the the module is so effective at at feeding you the right information. I think we're seeing a lot more of that with race car builds, you know, using an old uh, Android or iPad, you know, a tablet as your control center because they're they're so cost effective. Yeah. Even even like a used iPad Pro, which is probably other than like a Microsoft Surface Pro or something, it's probably the most expensive. You know, they're two hundred and fifty bucks okay. for a really good for like a really good one uh, with you know crazy computing power and you know, one hundred and twenty eight gigs of storage. Um, you can you can do a lot with that. So I think that's going to become even more popular because the the reality of developing stuff for motorsports specific applications is that you're looking at a small, you know, a, a niche within a niche target market, especially if you're focused on the road racing world and not the greater motorsports community, which, you know, a lot of small companies can only afford to address a certain community, really. We really only sell to the track day, time attack, uh, club racing. You need to start hitting up uh, those circle community. track guys. There's a lot of those here in the Midwest. Yeah, I, I definitely need to. And I've had something I've wanted to do from the beginning. So if you're, if you're a listener to the show and you race circle track or know people in that community, uh, let me know. I'd love to talk to you. I, I really just don't know anybody in that world. And that's kind of funny coming from Alabama where it's probably 10 times more popular than road course racing, but uh, it's just the people you know in the community you're in. So if, if anybody's out there, I do know there's a lot of uh, what's funky with, with Circle Track that I learned early on is there's a lot of series and different types of cars and classes that, that don't allow any data. Oh, uh, really? So you essentially have to use it for like practice only. So no like, yeah, and, and someone out there can correct me, um, but I'm I'm pretty confident, especially like the lower level NASCAR style series are, are pretty against data acquisition, which I think is kind of silly, but is what it is. I know people do it anyway, so. I'd love to get into that world. Reach out to me, Andrew at apextrackcoach.com. We can talk. <laughs> You've only said that like a million times, right? It just rolls off the tongue. That's right. So um, tell me about new features in um, um, the, the premium service that you guys provide. Yeah, so we, uh, we added several things to Laptimer Plus as of actually today, June 1st, uh, the day we're recording this. 
Um, so we had a lot of requests for um, just features in general. So people that subscribed to Laptimer Plus and wanted to be able to do certain things with the app. Uh, and that really gives us the opportunity, kind of like we were talking off off uh, before we were recording, um, because people are paying for the subscription now, we, that gives us the opportunity to um, to really afford to do more development so we can invest more time uh, and effort into uh, into UI development and feature development for those uh, for Laptimer Plus only features. Um, so the real benefit is that um, we'll hear you out if you want something and it doesn't take as many people you know, like when we're developing a new feature for the app, uh, you pretty much have to find like a hundred people is a good thing, is a good number for a new feature. Um, that's like a, a pretty good number. Like I want to hear from about a hundred people that they want a certain feature uh, before we even can give it the time of day because it's purely a cost. You know, it costs a lot of money to develop a new feature. You know, everything, people that are in the software community know what I'm talking about. Everything costs way more than you think as far as your time and your um you know, the tools and the resources you have to use to do it. And then you got to test it all. And then you're on the risk of breaking something that already works perfectly. And there's just a, a bunch of challenges with it. So I think Laptimer Plus more than anything does that. But there's a couple other more kind of uh, permanent things that come with it now. So you also uh, can log pedal position if you're using an OBD2. Um, you don't have to have an OBD2 uh, interface from us. But if you're using that on uh, one of the cars that um, that we support, then uh, you can get pedal position, which is the basically the percentage of pedal input, the throttle pedal measured at the pedal, not TPS, which is throttle position. Throttle position sensor is measured at the um, at the butterfly valve at the throttle body. So it's a little more uh, indi- indicative of what your right foot's doing on the throttle. So really good for analyzing, you know, how quickly you're getting off the throttle before you brake, and then you know how efficiently you're getting back to wide open throttle. Now, do um, do the majority of cars have um uh, an equivalent sensor available for like the brake or no? Uh, almost, uh, almost everything does not have a, uh, have a brake, uh, position. Um, especially so in, in OBD two, if, if we're talking OBD two only standards, so just what, uh, cars have to have for, um, to be visible through a OBD two port, uh, you actually, you don't have to have brake position or steering position or wheel speeds or anything like that. Um, it's pretty much just, there's a pretty simple list if you just Google like OBD2 um, channels or sensors. Uh, so our device is, is OBD2 only. It's not um, CAN supported. So CAN is, is a little more detailed than OBD2. It uses more of the pins that are on the little OBD2 plug. Um, so it has different communication protocol with the actual computers in the car to retrieve data off the CAN bus, which on some cars has brake pressure, if that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, kind of confusing, uh, but but also for Laptimer Plus, kind of a long-winded answer. But we're offering uh, <laughs> we're offering free track-specific webinars uh, about once every six weeks. We have a, a new Facebook group that's going to be specific for Laptimer Plus users. Um, you get all the features that it's already had, which is predicted lap timing, uh, sector times, ability to change the sectors to uh, customize them to your you know whatever you want to help you. Uh, get the most out of, you know, as far as looking at specific areas of the racetrack and then also theoretical laps. So, you know, combine all those best sectors together from a session. Uh, and what, what could you theoretically have done if you did all your best sectors in one lap? So those have already been there, so they're still going to be there, but we're going to be adding um, a lot of stuff. Uh, so it's now $99 a year uh, or $9 a month, nine ninety nine a month. And uh, 
we're going to be adding a custom channel. And this was in the email that I sent out, but we haven't really talked about it much publicly. We're going to be adding a custom data channel only for L- for Laptimer Plus about once every three months. Interesting. Uh, so like a new custom channel. And I've already already got a couple of those in the works. Uh, you, but, can you uh, hint at any of them? Cool. Uh, I don't know. We might leave it leave it so people can figure out. It'll just be uh, think of it this way. It'll just be stuff that's very specific, and it only helps with maybe one specific thing. But it'll be extremely simple to understand whether you're doing that thing or not. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, I can't remember if we talked on the last show, um, but I, I think there was some discussion and debate about how uh, sectors should be managed. Uh, in order to get the most out of not only predictive, but um, the most out of your your driving ability. Um, can you remind me what your thoughts are on how uh, users should kind of uh, break apart the track to, to you know, best manage uh, reducing their lap times? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. And I've actually got a video uh, that talks a little bit more about it. Um, and we also have a video about how predictive timing is calculated. So I, I can send those to you and they're, they're both really helpful. But if you're, if you're using data, regardless of your system and you're looking at defining sectors, so you want to break the track down into smaller chunks, you know, one or two corners or maybe three corners. So you can overlay data specifically for those sectors or just look at, you know, just looking at the sector time and comparing it over multiple laps is really helpful. Uh, but you do have to, like you said, you have to be able, you have to, manage those sectors efficiently and you have to set them so they're actually beneficial and not misleading. Um, so you, you really want to uh, define your sectors when there's no major change happening in the car. So you don't want to start or end a sector right when you go back to throttle or right when you go to the brake or in the middle of a corner. Um, you kind of want to do it like I tend to set sectors while I'm at wide open throttle right before I go to the brake or maybe, you know, half a second before I go to the brake, a couple hundred feet. Okay. before you go to the brake pedal on, on a straightaway, ideally. Um, so you don't want to, you don't want to define sectors in like connected sections of racetrack or in a braking zone. Okay. Um, what are some other, uh, like not obvious tips for how to, how to make more of, of data? <laughs> the shapes of the, of the graphs are important. Um, I think that's, I think a lot of times, um, as especially, depending on what your background is and, and what you come from, if you, especially if you look at data on a, da- on a daily basis or anything like that, the values a lot of times are not as important as the shapes. Um, the shapes of a speed trace or a longitudinal G-trace or lateral G-trace or a friction circle, um, the shapes are just as important as what the values are. Now, it's all relative. Of course, the, the values matter, but you can learn a lot from just understanding what shapes you're looking for. So don't don't downplay how important that can be. Um, there's a it's easy to see like within 10 seconds of looking at someone's data if they have good technique or not by looking at the shape of the speed trace. I believe that, especially especially the the slope of that braking line, right? Like if it's if it's really shallow, you're like, uh, well, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you see a big curvy kind of top of the speed trace. Um, and you're not seeing sharp pointed sawtooth shapes, you know, immediately that the driver's struggling, 
um, you know, being confident with the brake pedal. They're not going from wide open throttle to braking. They're kind of being hesitant, releasing the throttle and hesitant applying the brakes. And that's, you can see that in all of five seconds if you know what to look for. But I, th- I think I see a lot of discussion on um, on Facebook and, and internet forums and just people talking in the track in general. And people like to throw out the peak numbers, you know, the whether it's top speed, minimum corner speed, or peak Gs. Like, oh, yeah, I decelerated at one and a half, you know, longitudinal G, negative one, one and a half long G. Or, or yeah, I pulled two Gs laterally in this corner. It's like, well, that's great, but you really got to know the progression. How did you get there? And was that a spike? Was that a peak, like an irregular accelerometer spike that just, or was that a, a true value? Or is that even good? Like what if your car is capable of two and a half, right? Then two's not really that great. So to me, the, the shapes are what you want to learn first. And then you want to understand the values a little more. And then you want to be able to kind of put them together. Okay. So this, uh, we're gonna we're gonna try and do this. I just forwarded to you a graph. It was a screen cap of um, in this case Got it's it. aim data. Um, looking at sawtooth shapes is really easy, right? Like if if corners are um, discrete and it's like you know hard on the brake and go through the corner and then back on the gas. But mm-hmm. um, in instances at let's say Gingerman where you're talking about corners um, seven, eight, nine. Uh, which in this picture that you're looking at is maybe at around 6,000 feet on the x-axis. How do you look at, um, you know, something that's not just sawtooth and, and be able to analyze and interpret what you should be doing differently? Yeah. So this is obviously, and I don't, I, um, I purposely didn't look at the driver of the car, but this is what indicate to me that's probably a pretty powerful car. Uh, uh I think they both are. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That that would be a guess purely because there's not a nice sawtooth shape there. So this is where there's drivers probably cornering and we're just looking at a speed trace uh, for those listening. Um, The driver's probably cornering and trying to accelerate, but because they're, they're doing both, they're not quite able to. So in this case, we're kind of looking at, um, you're not, this is where you get a little more gray, right? The sawtooth isn't necessarily going to be the right way to get through here. So the, the blue driver consistently has much slower minimum corner speeds. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not sure if it's a different car or driver combination, but um, the same, same case goes here. They get a much, a much slower run out of uh, the previous corner for the section you're talking about. And then they're certainly not as confident staying on the throttle uh, longer through this section. And it's, that kind of bump that you see in the speed trace on the blue lap there, those two kind of little humps is really odd to me. Um, that would be something I would try to go fix. I would try to make it look maybe more like the red or maybe more smooth. So the, uh, bec- the, the corners that we're referring to specifically for people listening are like, uh, I think it's like seven through 10 a at Gingerman. So this is uh, pretty high speed. Uh, lots of, lots of G load here. Um, the cars, uh, both have some amount of aero, but they're both on street tires. And so, uh, they're going quickly through here, but, um, it's, I, it's just interesting to see because those corners are connected. And so the sawtooth trace kind of doesn't seem as obvious anymore. Yep. Yeah. That's not a, the sawtooth top of the speed trace is, is, is only going to be applicable. And I say only, it's usually pretty generally applicable for anywhere you're breaking in a straight line. At least, even for a even for a you know split second, but in a in a place where you're accelerating and cornering, or braking and cornering, um, especially in a in a faster, more powerful car, 
it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, you're not going to see a, a sharp sawtooth at the top. Uh, and it's, you know, you might not be able to break as decisively with the car loaded, but immediately the first thing I noticed with these two graphs is the, the blue car's got a lot more power, um, and probably is on a, a less sticky tire or a different tire simply because it's pretty consistently has slower minimum corner speeds. Um, obviously the, the driver's going to make the biggest difference, uh, in that in, the, in most cases, but, uh, it has a, it's a lot faster in a straight line. The blue car is It's a lot faster. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, but both of these cars are fast. I mean, just looking at the minimum speeds, um, there's only two, two places where they're under 50 miles an hour and they're both doing 130 on the straightaway. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, one other point we're looking at the spot around 8,000 feet. Um, tell me about your experience, uh, for corners and tracks that you drive where, um, you know, entry speed or minimum corner speed is, uh, you, you have to balance that to like getting a better exit out of the corner. Um, you know, how, how do corners differ to you to, to make you decide how you want to attack an individual corner? Yeah. Great question. So it's, it's a matter of priority is, is what it comes down to. I think that's what you're asking. It's how do you prioritize your entry versus your exit? And how do you, how do you, uh, it's pretty much always a blend of the two. So I kind of think of it as like a, you know, a line and on the right side is going to be maximum exit, you know, excellent wide open throttle as soon as possible. And on the left side is, you know, maximum entry speed rolling as high a minimum corner speed as possible. And you're taking a slider and you're kind of moving it somewhere in the middle, right? You want to kind of blend those two because you don't want to give up on either. And generally the slower the corner and the longer the following straightaway, the further to the right side, which would be the exit you want to move that that kind of decision-making slider. You want to prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. Um, kind of the rule of thumb that I use is that if your minimum corner speed is three to five miles per hour slower from either end of that line, so let's say you're going for maximum exit and your minimum corner speed is 40 miles per hour, and then you go for maximum entry and your minimum corner speed is 50 miles per hour, that's too big of a gap. Got 10 it. miles per hour is way too big of a gap, right? You should you should still be able to do 45 and get on the throttle really early. So the you know, we hear slow in fast out a lot. Slow in fast out's a, a bad phrase cuz you want to go fast in fast out. Um and even in horsepower cars, if you lose 3 to 5 miles per hour in the corner, your exits while still uh important, you're never going to gain that speed back up. Right. You're not you're not going to just magically get that three miles per hour back. Yeah. And so and I know that there are there's kind of a million ways to think about how to go fast around a track. But something, especially in a slow car, something that is um, like really important to think about is if you take a lap time at any track that that lap time represents an average speed. And in a slow car, your ability to hit more uh, like more top speed any like on a long straight the top speed in a honda fit is going to be pretty consistent among a large array of drivers right like it's you know get out of the corner and just mash the pedal for as long as you can and it's Mm -hmm. if if there are differences between drivers i think they'll be small um but uh, a way to get a whole lot of lap time back in terms of average speed is to spend less time braking and go to the go through the corners as fast as you possibly can and i think um, having driven my Evo, that's not something I thought about a lot because it was always just like, well, you get through the corner and then you let it rip. Um, but, <laughs> uh, 
it's it's certainly a lot easier to think about that when when a car is actually very slow. But I think it still applies to a fast car. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that's a really important point. Like if it, if anyone out there's had a professional driver drive their car and it's a relatively low horsepower, you know, more what we would call a momentum car. Um, you're probably not going to see a huge difference if you're a pretty competent driver between you and a pro. You know, it might be a second, maybe two or three seconds at the most, um, which, you know, on a track like, you know, a minute and a half lap time or two-minute lap time is not really a massive percentage difference, right? That's pretty close. Right. Um, but if you were to add 300 horsepower to the equation, that gap's going to get bigger uh, because a, a professional driver is going to be able to both roll the same entry speed that you're probably able to roll and get on the throttle earlier and more confidently and manage the, the apex to corner exit. Uh, and also the medium speed corners. I always seem to find that professional drivers can get through the corners where, you know, they're 60 to 80 mile per hour corners. They're not flat, but they're not hard braking. Um, they're kind of rolling a mix of rolling speed and exit speed. I think that's where, pro drivers tend to, uh, they get the most out of the gray areas, kind of like what we're talking about right now. They tend to prioritize a little better. So, you know, the general rule of thumb is with a really high horsepower car, you know, or, or limited traction car, even a slow car with limited, limited traction. Um, if you're on that end of the spectrum, you're going to have to focus, you're going to have to set the car up a little more for the exit. Uh, you're going to, you're going to be prioritizing a little bit more getting on the throttle sooner. If you can get to the throttle 10 feet sooner, by carrying one mile per hour less, that's a big difference. Right. Um, if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're in a you're in a momentum car that's that's pretty slow, you probably want to carry that. You'd probably elect to carry that one mile per hour through the corner and be later to the throttle, um, because like you kind of said, you're, you're probably going to end up being at the same. You might end up being within one or two miles per hour, and one or two miles per hour at the end of the straightaway is a pretty small percentage difference. Again, relative, it's going to be harder to find that the track, in the corner. Yeah. Yeah, so the, it's there's a lot of gray areas there, but that's kind of how I, I make that decision-making matrix is how I choose which way to go. If you got a lot of power, set the car up a little bit more for your exit, just a little bit. If you have, if you don't have a lot of power, uh, roll the entry speed. Uh, and the other big thing, the other big difference that we see uh, a lot between pros and and you know pros and Joes, uh, if you will, is um, just you know somebody who's not paid to drive or um, doesn't do it for their career is that uh, professional drivers tend to earlier apex. They tend to turn in earlier pretty universally, almost everywhere. Um, and when I say earlier, I'm not talking significantly. I just mean that, you know, if you're watching an onboard or looking at data between a really, really fast pro driver and someone who's a, a really capable amateur driver, pros usually start to add a little bit of steering input a little bit sooner. And sometimes that's even weight of their hand on the wheel. It's just pressure. It's convincing the chassis and going ahead and, and compressing the springs a yep. little bit and communicating with the car. We're going to start turning it so sooner again, like for anyone listening, I'm not, I'm not a talented driver. I, I drove a little bit back in the day, but like uh, I did autocross for a little while. And one of the things that I think you see more of in autocross is, um, you know, driver's ability to, get weight transfer in the car to make the car do more of what they want. Um, like, especially like on a slalom section, as an example, like you would use the, the spring action of the car and different elements to like get the car to swing each direction instead of just like relying exclusively on like turning the wheel and going back and forth. Right. And I, 
I don't think you see as much of that on uh, road course, but I think that the people who do it really well are probably those people that are, that are going faster. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think, I think anyone that can, can drive well on, um, low grip surfaces, uh, can, can be really, really fast on asphalt. You know, it's, it, you have to feel a lot more and you have to understand the chassis dynamics more because it, it affects, it affects things. It's more visceral as to how it affects things. Whereas when you have grip, you, you can kind of be a little, can be a little misleading. So, um, the entire world, the racing world has, uh, jumped into, uh, simulator stuff. I mean, Adam and I do, uh, grid life, I racers on Wednesday night and we do a Forza league on Tuesday night. Have you uh, have you managed to to stay away from from simulators, or are you deep in that as well? <laughs> I uh, I'd like to say I'm I'm deep into the sim world as well, but I'm really not. I, I have a uh, I have a Logitech G twenty seven, and I have a I actually have like a gaming computer, but I currently uh, don't have any space for it. So I um, it's well, you, kind of I've been also, out of the sim game for uh, a couple years. You have a home life that's foreign to Adam and I in that. Uh, when you leave work, you seem to just like disconnect, which is is admirable, but also unusual. I try to. I um, I'm not always successful, <laughs> but I try to. Uh, I try to like uh, turn on my do not disturb after like 8 p.m. And I've I've kind of gotten in. I've convinced myself to do it enough, just because being, you know, being pretty much solely accountable for all customer interaction. Um, for the companies is really, really stressful and, and can be kind of intense at times, uh, especially on busy track weekends. Oh, sure. And so I've had to con- you know convince myself the world won't fall apart if I don't respond to people immediately. And um, I've kind of taught myself that that's the case. So it uh, it usually works. Like this past weekend, I, I missed a couple of pretty pressing um, emails with people that had time-sensitive things, you know, an issue they needed solved or a question um, but I didn't really miss a whole lot. And I, uh, I was at, I was at the lake and I had, I didn't have any cell service. Um, so I pretty much just put my phone away and ignored it for the whole day. But I, I find that the relative gain from, uh, like having that stress out of my life is way greater than being able to just respond to one more message. Well, you don't, email. you don't strike me as a particularly stressed guy. I think you're, you're cool as a cucumber pretty much all the time. I try to be. Part of that's turned on do not disturb and leaving my phone. I, my stress level is directly correlated with my phone. I secretly hate it. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's talk about something that you love. You recently bought a thing, and you've been teasing the internet for weeks, it seems. <laughs> so tell me about your obsession for uh, old, junky English off-roaders. Yeah. Oh man. I love rusty, awful, falling apart Land Rovers. It's just my thing. No, not, not really, but, but a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've recently been faced with the challenge of buying a new car. Um, cause, as cause you sold owned. the seven three, you had a yep, very, had a, very clean two wheel drive, yes. uh, F two fifty seven three. Yep. And annual it, transmission. It was uh, light on miles too, right? 70,000 miles. Man. Yeah. I uh, I bought it. Really, uh, we were going to invest in a trailer for Apex Pro for trackside uh, support. And uh, when we started looking at what it cost to do it right, you know, I'm not just going to buy a trailer. We were going to do it 
make it sweet. You know, I'm like, okay, well, I, I better pick up a truck. I was looking for another car at the time. I had an 88 944 um, Porsche was my daily, which with 170,000 miles, 30-year-old German sports car, most practical daily driver on the planet. Um, so I was like, I probably need another probably another, you know, reliable transportation. So I was looking at diesel trucks so I could have the capacity to tow a, a pretty sizable, you know, trackside support data kind of lounge trailer. And uh, this 7.3 came up and the price was sweet. And I was like, you know, if I don't end up using it, I'll sell it and I'll probably end up making money because I was, I couldn't believe it when I saw it for sale. I was like, there's no way. And I didn't believe that it had, it had 58,000 miles on it when I bought it. I was like, there's no 7.3 Ford on the planet with 58,000 miles. So I ended up buying it, and uh, we decided not to get a trailer. And a year later, I sold it for, ended up making a little over four grand. Nice, um, selling it. So I was happy. Um, which is why I bought, an, which is why I now have a, a different car. So if if your situation was anything like mine, you would you would take a reliable vehicle, you would sell it, and then you would buy a less reliable vehicle, which is in this case is. Hey, it's Adam. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. Oh, it's Adam. I don't know if uh, I don't know if he's recording yet, so he may not be on the show. All right. Well, I wonder if I can kick him off. Should I stop recording? Hey, Andrew, Abe? just hit pause. Okay. Perfect. So we took a little pause to talk to Adam, but uh, Adam actually answered his phone without actually talking to us. So uh, now we're back on Land Rover Discoveries and uh, not not new ones, like old ones. So cool. you had uh, a kind of reliable car and you sold it I did. and you bought a Discovery. Yep. I had the most reliable diesel truck ever made. And I sold it for one of the most questionably reliable SUVs ever made. What does your wife have to say about this? She likes Discovery, so we're good. Well, I mean, that's that's something. But like, yeah. it, does she also like chauffeuring you around when it's broken? Yeah, we call it the shoddy shuttle. <laughs> so she just picks me up, takes me where I need to go. Now, we're, we're in a pretty unique situation as far as um, quote-unquote reliable cars go because I work uh, less than a mile, yeah, about a mile away from where I live. And in between my house and my office is the best Land Rover shop in Birmingham. Uh, and I know I'm pretty well. So that was a pretty big persuasive um aspect of going back to a uh, I've owned two older Land Rovers so I've I've actually as far as cars go I'm probably most familiar with them because of course I had to work on them both so I I you know taken them all apart and put them back together so um a lot of times reliability is a function of the owner and uh so actually for me both the Land Rovers I had were actually pretty reliable um but yeah I bought the most traditionally unreliable discovery which is the the 0304s how had all sorts of crazy motor problems from the factory um, you know, blocks would, would chip, uh, they would have, they had the, what they called porous block, which but basically over time, the block would disintegrate, um, which was a manufacturing, both the manufacturing issue and they, uh, they commonly ran pretty hot cause they had a high temperature thermostat in them, uh, for the U S to pass like California emission standards. Um, so they would get pretty hot and it would damage the blocks and, um, yeah, so that's why people are justifiably afraid of uh, no, nothing about that seems good. But why? Why do you think good. that's good? I need that. 
<laughs> well, the, I don't want that part of it, but um, well, okay. There's there, there's a lot. I mean, it's not a logical decision. Obviously, most of us that are into cars like cars that we like, and a lot of times we can't even explain it. But um, I like the seating position and just like the way you feel and the discovery. It's really it's really nice. If you've driven one, you would know you know what I mean. You kind of sit really upright. Your um the the, the window sills like almost as low as your leg. You got really good visibility. Um, the interior is absolutely awesome. They're comfortable. Um, they have a cool configuration. They're coil sprung um, with solid axles front and rear, and they have locking uh, center diffs and a low-speed transfer case for off-roading. Um, so they're super capable. It's it's a Land Rover Defender with a different body on it. Um, so there's a lot of appeal from an off-roading perspective, but because they're coil sprung and not leaf sprung, which pretty much everything else you know of that era has leaf springs, that's an off-road vehicle, um, they're way more comfortable on the road as far as ride, ride quality goes. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of good reasons to buy one. They're pretty simple too. Um, you know, the motors are push rod V8s. Um, the drive lines are solid axles and, you know, simple stuff that's been around forever. So they're pretty easy to, pretty easy to work on. Um, parts, you know, the stuff breaks all the time. So, you know, they've, they're old, they've been around forever. A lot of people have broken them. So there's cheap parts available. Um, how many miles on the disco? Mine's got 153, but the motor is not a disco motor, which is why I bought it. Um, it's from a uh, Range Rover. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff. Like like with a disco, you'll get a lot of car for very little money if you buy right. If you buy wrong, you'll get a really nice steaming pile of garbage. <laughs> so you really, you got to, but that's, that's the other big reason to own them is they're pretty cheap for what they are, even though the values are going up so for an equivalent like if you're looking at a a land cruiser or a gx 470 toyota um basically cut in you know cut the price in half you're going to pay for one of those to get but to me those seem cheap right like especially the the gx's like yeah you can get an eight-year-old gx for like twenty thousand bucks and that yeah that to me seems like a lot of car for that money it is. It totally is. I tried so hard to buy. I wanted to buy um, an LX four seventy or a Land Cruiser one hundred series Land Cruiser so bad. I tried. I just I couldn't do it, man. I've had a I had a five speed Discovery in college that I found kind of on a whim. And um, would, would it then I just be love them. fair to say that uh, uh, as as the Discovery is kind of a dice roll? Is that is that the truck equivalent to like buying a used Mazda RX eight? We're like, there's a chance yeah. it's good, but it's probably not. It's probably not good. <laughs> um, but if you do the right knowledge, you know the buyer, or you know the seller, um, you have a lot of knowledge on it, and you read a lot, and you're not afraid of rolling your sleeves up, uh, and you know what noises are good noises and what noises are bad noises, uh, you're pretty good. I would say you, you probably stand a much, uh, <laughs> you're much more likely to get a good one than um, than an RX-8, uh, because rotaries um you know tend to even when they're freshly rebuilt they're not going to last very long yeah right so that's that's a little bit of a you know a little bit of a challenge right if like if you drive one hard they're just only going to last so long just like a two-stroke um but with the with the disco you can you stand a better chance but the cool thing with the discos they've been around forever and all the all the like indicative problems that they have they were built with there's all aftermarket you know all these different companies have solutions for them so if you buy one from like a forum member or something, most of the issues, like mine has had every disco issue addressed. Uh, like it's got, 
So the another problem they had was the front drive shaft would um, at sixty thousand miles they weren't greasable, and if you didn't replace them before sixty thousand miles, they'd come apart and go into the transmission. And the transmissions never break, so then you would just break the most reliable part of the car. Um, so if it has greasable drive shafts on it, that's a huge plus because you can grease them and then they last basically the life of the vehicle. Um, and then obviously you basically want to throw out the motor for the 0304 at least. If you're out there looking at discos, 0304 with an original motor, probably don't buy it. If it's an earlier one, you're you're potentially good. If it's had head gaskets done and hasn't been overheated, you're probably good. 0304, throw out the motor, get something else. Um, those are pretty main too. That's really all you got to know. Everything else is easy to fix. So I think they have a, they're like any car. The reputation is, is a lot of, is usually overblown from like a concentrated group of people that have had really bad problems, but discoveries just were, they're just higher maintenance than well, normal I, cars. Especially and as they like a lot of issues, any car that's, um, uh, focused in some way to an enthusiast market, like you're going to you're going to know everything that's wrong with it because those people are going to be on Facebook and on forums and they're they're going to be active in conversation versus like yeah. I don't know like if it would be really hard to know what all goes wrong with a Hyundai Sonata because like I don't know you just get like <laughs> generic internet hits like my transmission right. broke or whatever you know it's like uh, yeah. the, the conversation's a little bit lower, not lower brow, but it's like less informed. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the conversation we're having right now really is not um, specific to a discovery. It's, I mean, whether you're looking at a, a Land Rover discovery or an MX five track project or, or a Mustang or, you know, whatever, um, really the enthusiast cars, you stand a much better chance of, of being a part of the conversation and learning why these cars, why the cars have the problems that they do. So you can really fundamentally understand, you know, the issues and how to address them. I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then just the, like the communication I had with the guy I bought it from, he was on the forum. We talked about it. The car wasn't even for sale when I bought it from him. He had just put new tires and shocks and all this stuff on, invested a lot of money into it and had a, had a bunch of cars that is, girlfriend was basically asking him to sell and so he was kind of reluctantly selling it and i caught him selling another car tried to buy the other one and it had already sold and he goes hey i have this other one and i wasn't going to sell it but my girlfriend convinced me to sell a couple of my cars and um those i've always found are the like those types of situations are where you usually get the best stuff and i've only had the truck for three thousand miles now but i did drive it home from chicago to birmingham without any breakdown so it's a nice drive pretty well i think it happens pretty quick yeah, it's not too bad. It really isn't. You probably do it. You've done it uh, in the recent past. Yeah, I made uh, uh, I made great time. Like really, yeah, I remember talking really about that. great time. I don't think we talked about that on on your show, but uh, it really makes Barbara feel within reach. I guess uh, have yeah, uh, it's not too bad. Has has Barbara been open for anything recently, or are you guys still uh, sequestered this this coming weekend? Uh, is the is the is the opening opening weekend for for car track days? I think we had sport bike track time here this past weekend, uh, but this will be the first track day since um, since the actually the race that that uh, that I was in the first week of March. Oh man, so such a long time. Now, does that mean that you're gonna like pack up and do Apex Pro support at the event, or are you like off on the weekend? 
Uh, this weekend I will be coaching um, a driver actually, so uh, hired to do some coaching services. That sounds like fun. Um, yeah, you know, for those people that are potentially interested in uh, obtaining a driver coach, what what do you like them to know before you um, or like before they solicit uh, a new coach? Uh, great question. And it's, you know, I think you got to start out with like, why, you know, why do I want a coach or what's the value in a coach? And, um, it's pretty simple. I mean, every other sport, right. Coaches are part of the, part of the deal. You don't even play the sport without coaches growing up. Um, and in racing for some reason, that's not even after all the driving schools that have become popular. And, uh, it's still, it's not just really, it's not really a popular thing. So a lot of people, um, a lot of people see it as an expensive thing that you know you just may or may not really need they'd rather buy tires and i totally get that if if you're just going to the track for fun then um then you really need to think about a coach but if you're going to the track to compete and you're investing in yourself as a driver and you want to be the best you can be you really need to consider a coach uh because it's i mean pretty straightforward right someone else that's trained to find stuff that you're doing and and learn uh, help you learn how to get over the the barriers that you have is really is probably going to help you you know and you, and you a lot of times you can't find those things yourself um, simply because you're in your own head and if that's all a coach does for you that's really valuable um, but a lot of really good coaches understand how to implement um, a lot of mental um, fixes in your game you know really simple stuff like give you an idea of something to think about before you go on track and if you find the right trigger your mental headspace changes and then you have that person there to, to create that trigger. And now all of a sudden you've done something really simple. That's totally, you know, affected your, your mental state and is allowing you to perform better. So it's, it's really having someone there that's looking after your performance and all they're there to do is help you learn. Well, I, I mean, I would the, say the, that the even, even myself as a driver, there are, uh, there have been experiences that I've had on track where like, uh, I mean, certain racetracks are scary, man. They give me the willies. And I like, you know, if I was competing, I was going out there to run, but like it's, it wasn't, I wasn't connected and I wasn't, uh, like really, really engaged in trying to, to do my best necessarily. It was more like, you know, just get through this. And then there are other tracks where it's like, you know, you're in the right headspace and you're, you know, you're putting down good laps and you're, you're really challenging yourself to go faster and you're into it. And like making, Making it so that that isn't the limiting factor is, yeah, that's like, that's, that's pretty valuable. Yeah, definitely. You know, sometimes you just need a confidence booster. And when you hire somebody that has, and I say just, you know, all these things, all these words like simple and just are usually a combination of your coach's entire life's worth of experiences uh, with driving and racing and competing. And that's why they're able to to do this is because they they have that experience and they understand how to help you. Um, but having somebody that's got credibility that you look up to, that's a really capable driver that is coming to coach you, have that person look at you and say, Hey man, you're pretty good. You can do this. Like that is, that is very powerful. And when someone tells you that and inspires, inspires you like that, uh, it goes a really, really long way. And like you were saying for so many people, for so many of us, for pretty much everyone, we struggle with confidence in fast corners, uh, or just corners that we get frustrated with or lack patience with. And just having somebody there that you look up to that can offer, you know, some insight and can boost your confidence. That's, that's worth a lot. Um, the, the thing I would recommend is, you know, coaching's not cheap, um, regardless of who you hire, uh, regardless how much they charge. 
So really, uh, really make sure that you're prepared for it and you're willing to, to put a lot of time and effort into it as well, because you, you want to make sure that money goes as far as possible. Uh, and you know, most people can't afford to hire a coach for every event. Um, and that's probably not always the best idea anyway, but I would, I would definitely engage with somebody that you can work with a little bit remotely, um, with data and with video, uh, and just with conversation, don't undervalue, um, you know, just calling whoever you're going to hire. Or even if you're going to a DE and you're going to have a coach at the event, you know, an instructor provided, um, or if you're going to a grid life event, right. And you're working with, um, some coaches that are going to be out watching you on corners and offering some lead following stuff like that. Don't undervalue, um, just getting to know them really well and, um, get to know your instructor so you can communicate with them and make sure they know who you are, you know, what you do, you know, what your family life's like, what your background is, other things you've done, because being able to, for a coach, being able to communicate in the terms of another sport or another activity is really, really valuable. Absolutely. That a lot of times can help align you, you know. So um, that's my advice on coaching. I think we're about 45 minutes into the show. So let's, uh, let's uh, first, thanks for joining us again. Um, and uh, I'd like to do one of these in person someday because that's sometimes the most fun part. Um, but where can people learn more about Apex Pro? Yeah, we definitely need to do one of these in person sometime. So there's a lot of different places that you can check out Apex Pro stuff. Definitely our website is uh, apextrackcoach.com. Um, that's a great place to, to get started and learn a little bit about us. Um, we offer um, YouTube content related to motorsports data on a weekly basis. Um, look, up, look up Apex Pro on YouTube. Um, there's also a keyboard and a golf club called an Apex Pro. Um, so we were here before the keyboard, actually. Uh, like a computer keyboard or like a piano yeah, keyboard? A computer keyboard. It's like a like a gamer keyboard. Sounds rad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we probably should. We should get together with them and, and do something. But um, just look up Apex Pro channel on YouTube, and that'll put you on our YouTube channel, and you can subscribe for, for new content. And then, of course, we're on Facebook, Instagram, everything like that, at Official Apex Pro. And uh, uh, you, you, we talked about some of those webinars that you've done in the past three months. Are customers potentially able to buy those after the fact and watch, or was that like a, a live-only feature? Uh, you can buy them after the fact. Uh, just reach out to me via email, and uh, I will um, will process your payment and send you an email with a link to the uh, to the video. I believe the uh, Robbie Foley webinar is still purchasable on our website. Um, some of the older ones uh, are no longer up there, but you can actually go directly to our website and buy that one. And uh, make sure to find these guys at the track. I think someday you'll be at a good life. Uh, you were supposed to be at NCM, I had thought, but uh, well, you know, yeah, weird things I know, happen. Man, I'm bummed. I was going to be racing GLTC at, at NCM. Do and, you have any other plans uh, uh, for the racing season once everything kind of gets up and going again? Uh, I do. I, I don't ex- I have a plan to, to be at a grid life event. Um, hopefully, hopefully that'll change. I can maybe figure it out, but I'm can, definitely going to be running the, uh, VIR 24 champ car race, um, with HMS motorsport. They've got an E30, uh, with, that'll be a lot of fun. And then I think I'm going back to VIR again in September for the world racing league endurance race. So that sounds nice. I'll be doing a lot of laps of VIR. Yeah. It's not too bad. Should be All fun. Right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for being on the show, and uh, I hope we see you again soon. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Cheers.
Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at Gridlife and say hello. Thank you.